Annette is probably the other, or she is the other person in the family who was out a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she dancing. was out dancing, um, going to the Cafe de Flor, going to Beaux-Arts. She was a 19, 20 year old teenager, a young woman who was in Paris and she wanted to live in Paris. She wanted to be Parisian. And so, um, you know, nothing was going to keep her down, including Nazis. That was Heather Dune McAdam, who was talking about Annette Zellman, a 19-year-old Jewish girl in Paris, France, during the Nazi occupation. Heather Dune McAdam and her husband, Simon Wall co-authored Starcrossed, a true Romeo and Juliet story in Hitler's Paris. The book went on sale August 22nd, just a few short weeks ago. And this is a must-read going back in time in the early 1940s in Paris, France. Heather also wrote 999, The Extraordinary Young Women of the First Official Transport to Auschwitz. And Simon has written two books and is a writer for National Geographic magazine. And here's my interview with Heather and Simon about Starcrossed. Heather and Simon, I am truly honored. Thank you for coming on my podcast to talk about Starcrossed. Thanks for having us, Rob. Yeah, we're happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. So I have a lot of things to cover, and I I know you'll be able to fill in the gaps. But uh, I have read the book, and it really uh, gave me a lot of emotions when I read it. I got angry, and I was elated when in other parts of the book. But um, I think everyone needs to read this to look back at a time how a family did persevere through a horrible time. And uh, first of all, um, how did you get to the uh, book, to writing it? And how did you research? Because I find that pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, well, there were Simon. two strands, really. Memory of Michelle Zellman, who's 95 the other day. We mm-hmm. sang her happy birthday. She was the kid sister of Annette Zellman, our hero. When Annette was 18, 19, Michelle was about eight or nine. I went to, we went to Paris. We spent three months there in Michelle's beautiful apartment in March. And we sat and we pulled out her memories. And the woman was absolutely amazing, fit as a flea, uh, credible memory. She was great because she wouldn't invent. She would say, I can't remember that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But she could remember... Like yesterday, all the events of that distant time, 1940 to 1945. So all of the recording we did with her and the letters from Annette, the drawings of Annette. Well, let's all pause there. Family the archive. Law. So Michelle had inherited an archive of mm-hmm. letters and, and uh, art diary that was her sister's that no one in the family had seen um, that her... uh, So Michelle had an older brother and he held that. It was precious to him. Some of the letters were to him personally. And so when he passed away, he um, left that box to Michelle. And that was only about, I don't know, six or seven years Mm -hmm. ago. She'd Mm -hmm. never seen any of these letters. So that is a big part of our archive. And then of course we did field research and we did archival research in the Paris libraries, Memorial de la Shoah, the Cannes um, archive, which is the world France. war II archive in France for, that gives you um, everybody who was deported 
um, everybody who didn't survive, thanks to Sarah Clark. So when you were researching... And then the- we did about, probably read about 100 books. Wow. Well, I read the book, and it was uh, truly a remarkable book. So who were, um, you mentioned Michelle and you mentioned Annette, who were the Zellmans? Because I found them to be a very close family, but they had a lot going on as a a family and uh, also during the uh, Nazi Nazi occupation, but they were a family who were uh, together through a tough time. Yeah, they're incredibly resilient. And I think the most, the best part about the Zellman Circus, which was how they were known, (laughs) um, was that they were... um, smart, but they were autodidactic. They weren't intellectuals. They were not snobs. Uh, they were um, performers. They were fun and pretty crazy, very zany and resourceful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the father, Moshe, changed his name to Maurice when he emigrated from Poland to Norsey in France, eastern France. He was a larger-than-life character, very funny, a great performer. He had a beautiful voice. He was a cantor at the local synagogue. And he did weddings as a singer uh, in Paris. Uh, but his primary work was as a tailor. There's a great line from Michel where she said, the sound of the treble on the sewing machine was the soundtrack of our lives and, and what kept us alive. And he, she joked as well that he dressed half of Paris. So he could call in favors. <laughs> he got them through the war. There was always, Michel says, food on the table. He had a car he would drive out. And he would deliver clothes to farmers and farmers' wives and come back with eggs and chicken and bread and vegetables or whatever. And so he was the the sort of pivot with uh, Annette, who was 19. She was the other pivot of the family. And uh, the mother, uh, what, what's her name? Kayla. Kayla was the opposite. She was the sort of ground to his live work. And uh, she was a very laid-back woman. Nothing phased her. And, uh, you know, if he was over-egging it, he'd perform Russian love songs. He'd spent time in St. Petersburg. And after dinner, he'd play on the piano and he'd play these tear-jerking Russian songs. And he'd be tears pouring down his face. And if he was over-egging it, uh, Carla would say, Kayla would say, Come, Maurice, thank you, Sarah Bernhardt. Mm. So when uh, the the home that they lived in, that was pretty much their universe. So how did they, uh, how did they, were they able to manage during their lives and do everyday living with the Nazi occupation in Paris at that time? Well, it was terribly dangerous to go outside. You're safer in the house. Um, You know, Maurice was out gallivanting around and wheeling and dealing, which uh, meant uh, often, you know, doing, uh, I think you can hear our ice cream truck maybe going by. Taylor, um, (laughs) there's a lovely um, mention of the Algerian man downstairs who had a fruit stand, vegetable stand, Mm -hmm. and he... Um, he and Maurice obviously were very, very good friends and, and Maurice would come upstairs with the chicken, you know, just he, I think he was so affable that people always wanted to help him and then he could always dress you. So that was a huge part of it. Annette is probably the other, or she is the other person in the family who was out a lot. 
mm-hmm. and um, and she dancing. was out dancing, um, going to the Cafe studies. de Flore, going to Beaux Arts. She was a nineteen twenty year old teenager, a young woman who was in Paris, and she wanted to live in Paris. She wanted to be Parisian, and so um, you know nothing was going to keep her down, including Nazis. So Annette, that home that they lived in, the Zelmans. I was reading uh, when I read the book, she slept underneath the dining room table because she used to do her artwork on the dining room table because she was an artist. And uh, can you explain that? Because I uh, that was pretty much uh, she was like she was like the was she like the life of the of the family because everybody seemed to congregate at the dining room table. Yeah, she was the sort of second pole of the family with Maurice. She was the second decision maker because Kayla, the mother, was so laid back. And she was the babysitter for the kids. And as Michelle said, she always had an idea how to entertain the kids. Let's do this. Let's do that. <laughs> let's make paper hats, etc. And in the meantime, she was, yeah, at the dining table after dinner doing her artwork. But I will say, um, and, and I have, uh, I have a very, very dear friend who has a Russian family. Um, they had a huge Victorian home. There was no living room. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you wanted to congregate, it you went to the table. The, 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 the Russian, you know, the that is a very Eastern European experience. The the dining room table is where everybody lives, moves, and breathes. And um and 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 that certainly because she slept underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was uh fascinating because uh she was definitely very young, nineteen, and she was out and about as uh going to hanging out with people her age. When you saw the archives of the letters and things of that nature, did you feel like Annette came alive when you were getting this information because of how she lived? Because I find that fascinating because everything was in this archive. What was it like when you were actually going through the archive? Well, it was extraordinary. At first, I will say that it's all in French, and she has a very um, ornate scrawl. And um, her her great-nephew... Uh, Gregory typed all of the letters for us. And mm. he was, there was many times when I, you know, I couldn't understand what she had written and Gregory really got to know her script. Um, so it was once he had translated everything or he had transcribed everything, sorry, mm-hmm. then we had to translate it. And, and that, what was so interesting is that some, you know, you have to remember she was writing letters to her brother in prison mm-hmm. and also writing letters to her lover when she was in prison. So all of these letters have codes in them. Anytime you're writing to and from prison, especially, you know, with, with Nazis around, you had to send messages in code. And a lot of the code for her brother was humor. It was puns. It was cultural references that we needed help unpacking. And we had a wonderful historian uh, work with us. Mm-hmm. And and that was when, you you, you know, I had a feeling, because I worked a lot with the letters, um, and I had a feeling like I knew her. And then there would be a paragraph. I'd be like, what is going on here? And he, I would send it to this man in France. And he would come back and he'd say, oh, that was a film that came out in 1938. And that's a reference. to And 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 you just realize that her letters, um, 
especially to her brother, are just full of um, jokes. And some of them are going to be very personal that we will never know what she was saying. But they were to entertain him, enlighten him, and encourage him while he was in prison. And um, so you, I got a real sense of who she was, which is a very yeah. funny, funny, witty, smart young woman. They're marvelous letters. They're funny. They're sassy. They're witty. Uh, she has so many great put-down lines. Oh, my God. Sometimes of her love rival, Bella Lempert. She describes her as uh, with uh, rancid armpits and smelling of cheap <laughs> cologne. <laughs> and she's God. just... That's how we got... You're in her head. You're reading these... Really letters, in her head. Whether it's complaining about babysitting the kids or the <laughs> beginnings of her love for John. It, you're just in in her in her mind. So a uh, they uh, she got to uh, became attracted to Jean Gerion, a Catholic poet, um, and they were attracted to each other. But at that time, it was not uh, seen as getting the approval of, of each of their parents. But somehow they persevered through this tough time in their lives with Nazi occupation and also the tensions of their families. Yeah. They seem to have. Uh, can you explain the Annette and Jean how they met and? Uh, how their relationship transpired? Yeah, well, they met at the Café de Flore. She'd actually gone through a couple of other guys in the, in, <laughs> in their set previous to Jean, so you could say he was a sort of third choice, but that's a, yeah, that's a bit unfair. I remember that, yes. She genuinely, she genuinely did fall in love with him. Her first amour at the Café de Flore was Jean Rouche, who was a sort of alpha male of the setup, Sorbonne student, anthropologist, later a famous filmmaker she was very attracted to him but it was a sort of stop start relationship he wanted more in terms of the bed than she was prepared to offer and she sort of tortured him she called him her flea in a gar in her glass cage and finally she turned her attentions to jean who was a very well-known young poet dadaist surrealist poet he had a magazine, a cultural magazine in the 30s called Les Reverbères, which is the street lamp. So they published original art, poetry, prose, short stories, and they did crazy events, a bit like the happenings in Cal in San Francisco in the 60s, where they had jazz and, mm -hmm. and um, plays. And, <clears throat> and uh, he was very dapper young man. He dressed always in a finely tailored suit with a silk handkerchief in his breast pocket and um but he was an artist through and through and he came from a very bourgeois family his father was a well-known doctor of uh, diseases of the skin uh called uh, herbert jossian who was also a pro vichy semi-nazi and right-wing catholic he was a collaborator in the sense that he knew lots of collaborators like jean cocteau the playwright and poet. And so they met and they start to date and they go out and they get serious and there's tension, hence the Romeo and Juliet tag in the title. So from the Jewish side, yeah, well, he's a goy, that's not great, but they were mostly concerned that she was too young to get serious about a boy and the fact that he was goy, well, that's even worse. But it wasn't kind of like, they came to accept him eventually, became part of the family. But on the other side, the Josian family, 
they absolutely were rabid anti-Semites and they hated mm. the idea that their beloved only child, Jean, was dating a Jewess and God forbid could marry him and have Jewish spawn. <laughs> wow. I, I, you know, while I was reading That's the book... It. He does put it straightforward there. Yeah, it's, that was... Yeah. Uh, when, when I was reading the book, I found it uh, fascinating. Uh, even during the Nazi occupation, the family, the Zelmans, and even Jean and the other circle that she they seem to be fighters and they kind of even through the occupation they had to look over their shoulder they were they were fighters and they were resilient and they found ways to survive and do things help their neighbors or you know you know barter or do things to survive people would trade things did you find that fascinating during this that they throughout all the occupation of uh, paris that they were able to help each other out yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were born survivors. Maurice always pulled the rabbit out of the hat during the war and after the war. Uh, I don't know whether he had a whole bag full of gold ducats under the floorboards, but he always had money for an emergency. And yeah, they pulled through and they had their own world. Of course, that was, you know, out in the street, it was grim and dangerous. But in the four walls of the Zellman apartment, it was the circus. It was fun. It was funny. It was musical, it was crazy, and they lived their life like that. Uh, but of course, it got steadily worse all through 41, anti-Jewish edicts. Gradually, the noose tightened on Jewish people in Paris under the villain of our book, Theodore Danica, the head of the Nazi SS, who was a horrible piece of work, out-and-out -out Nazi and anti-Semite, organized mm -hmm. the transports of uh, French Jews out of Paris. And uh, there's a chilling moment, which is then a, a comedic moment, typically with the Zellmans, where uh, Maurice and, and Charles are out of the house, and I think Annette's out, and there's a big bang, bang, bang on the door. And Free uh, Kyla knows instinctively that's not a friend, that's not a neighbor. Nobody knocks, they just walk in. She opens the door, and there's two big French gendarmes, and they say, Where's, we're looking for Maurice Selman. Where is he? Is he here? And quick as a flash, Kyla, uh, ad libs, she says, Oh, that bastard Maurice. <laughs> he went off with some French whore two weeks ago. I haven't seen him so, since. And if you catch him, give him a big fat <laughs> knuckle sandwich in the face. Wow. But, but Maurice returned, she told him, and he was on the next train out to uh, the freezer, to Limoges. You mentioned knocking on the door. I, I, I remember one uh, when I was reading the book that you could tell by the knock of the door whether it was a friend or a foe, and that, that must have been gripping and horrible, uh, not knowing what was on the other side of that door because there were days, I think, would you think that there were days where it was not totally being besieged with uh, the Nazis or was it um, just always looking over your shoulder? Yeah, for the men particularly. Uh, At this point, definitely. And then, of course, there's another even more fatal, fateful knock on the door when Annette's parents and the rest of the family, they hightail it out of Paris as things heat up and they go to Limoges in the free zone, which is a Jewish-friendly city in central France. She says, oh, I'll join you in a week. I've just got to tidy up some loose ends here. Of course, she has no intention of going. She immediately moves into John's 
studio apartment, his their, which becomes their love nest. And then she's home alone, and there's a big knock on the door, and Heather will take it up from there. Well, that's. I don't need to take it up mm-hmm. there because we we know where it's going. But mm-hmm. you know, I will say any time, and as Simon said, any any time there was a knock on the door, it wasn't a friend. It's just, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, just the, the horror that they had to deal with. Um, so, uh, Annette ended up being transported at some, uh, after that knock on the door. Well, yeah. I mean, so to back up there, um, Annette and Jean Josian move in together and, and probably we're surmising this as a way to protect her because at this point there are, they've moved from male roundup to female roundup and the, um, and it, as a way to protect her, I think they probably thought, let's get married. They wanted to get married anyway, but to change the Zellman name to Josian because Jean's father was quite important <clears throat> and um unfortunately the moment they published their marriage ban within 24 hours there was the knock on the door they were and and she was she was arrested and 24 hours later from that um daniker who's head of the ss in paris passes a law making it illegal for a jew to marry a gentile and she becomes a political prisoner and that seals her fate <clears throat> I always, uh, when I was reading the book, I was always hoping that, uh, they would, I was hoping that they would, they would meet and I was waiting for that, that time yeah. where they would unite. And, um, uh, I, I, I was, uh, I, we know I, the end of the story and in the research of it, we feel the same way, you know, exactly. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many, I mean, this is my third Holocaust book and, um, I'm always, <laughs> wishing I could change the ending. Um, you know, novelists can do that. It's really easy. Um, and, and that's probably why a lot of people enjoy reading Holocaust novels because they're easygoing. They, you know, you can fictionalize, um, the story, but in our story, you have to tell the truth mm-hmm. and the truth is not pretty. It's not. And I found myself when I was reading the book, I was getting angry. I mean, I was like getting like, I can't believe like, how could they treat people like this? This was just, yeah. it was, it was horrible. It was just, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't fathom it. And I just, there were times I was just like getting angry while I was reading it. I said, I can't believe this. You know, it was, it's just horrible. Jean was a very brave person as well. He was a, on top of being a poet, he also, did he not join the resistance as well yeah. during uh, the world war two in Paris or in France? Yeah, he did. He, um, after Annette disappeared, he's stuck in limbo, miserable, sad and depressed. He goes back to the Café de Flore with his friends still, and Simone de Beauvoir writes a beautiful little paragraph about the empty seat. Yes. The beautiful Czech girl, as she called Annette, though she was Polish, and Jean are no longer there, and the empty seat is a symbol for all those others who've disappeared. And uh, he writes a novel, he visits... Her parents in Limoges, she becomes part of their family. And then as the liberation of Paris begins, he joins the 
fight on the barricades, you know, they erected barricades all over the It's like Les Miserables. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, like furniture and carts, and he was on those barricades. He actually got arrested, and I've never been able to find uh, the, the context, but he was released, and I guess his father intervened somehow. And then, um, yeah, then, uh, well, he sets off to find Annette. Mm. Uh, when you were in doing your research and you were in France, did you ever, did you go to places in France where maybe Annette went or Jean went or the Zelmans yeah. were? Because I find that like you find you, you probably feel their presence when you were there. Did you ever get to any of those places oh, where we, they lived? I, I followed them. Yeah, I will say, you know, because of Simon's background as a National Geographic uh, writer, um, you know, field work is super important with NG and and he is great to travel with and and to do field research with. So we did all of it. We wrote in the Café de Flor. We actually went to the Café de Flor with Michelle. Um, she showed us where Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul sat. sat. She showed us where Annette mm. and Jean sat. Um, we went to, we had a couple of great moments. Like we went to um, Boulevard de Strasbourg, where her, um, where Michelle, where the Zelmans lived in Paris. And, um, and the door was locked, of course, you know, there was no concierge and somebody came out and I did my little New York City number. I stuck my heel in the door as the door was closing and we, I held it open for Michelle, open for Michelle and she was delighted. Um, so we went into the, the building where, you know, the Zelman Circus lived and we went up those marble stairs, which were worn in the middle. And you could just see wow. the kids racing up and down those stairs in their roller skates. And we knocked on the door of the, of the apartment. It was COVID totally understandable that the woman didn't let us in, but um, you know, uh, in the middle of the night, uh, one night we decided uh, to get in the car. We had a car and we took the route from Boulevard Strasbourg to the Citadel in the middle of the night. So we could see the route that Annette probably took, mm. uh, was taken in the paddy wagon um, by the police when she was arrested. And, and, and then we walked around the Citadel and the Palais de Justice, which was extraordinary. Three blocks of city blocks. Uh, huge, like a giant fortress there, and that's where they had a, a jail. It's the it's the nerve center of French justice then and now. There's a famous scene in Les Miserables where, what's the policeman's name? Yeah, whatever. He looks across it and he talks about the tenements of darkness. And in the Palais de Justice, there's a horrific cell of prison in the basement called the Depot, where they held. Uh, you know, it's like a holding uh, cells. And it's for when you go, before you go to trial. But what was yeah. happening is there were so many people being arrested, so many Jews being arrested, <clears throat> that the depot was now more than just a holding before you go to court. It was, they, they were there for weeks. <clears throat> and, um, and it was very, very, um, very tough very um you you had no contact with the outside you could get letters but you couldn't even annette couldn't even meet with her lawyer mm-hmm. everything had to be letters mm. let me go back to michelle what was it like when you were uh you know it's talked earlier about talking to michelle 
Uh, did you see a little bit of a net in her when you were uh, talking with Michelle? Because you said she just celebrated her what 95th birthday. That must have been that must have been pretty unbelievable to meet Annette's sister. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. Um, I Same th- sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, very very sharp. I think I think Annette was more of a rebel. And more of an artistic, and, and more artistic. Michelle, Michelle is uh, ha, has a traditional family setting, and um, but but they are all of the Zelman children are very smart. Um, you know, no nonsense. And and Michelle and and I know her daughter very well, um, who's one of my best friends. You know, you yeah, absolutely. There's always a twinkle in their eye, and we were actually visiting them at Christmas last um, last year in Paris. <laughs> we went to see Michelle and and her daughter. She has identical twin daughters, and they stood up with their husbands and started dancing for their for mm-hmm. their mother, and it was just adorable. I just I just looked at Simon and I was like, oh my god, it's the Zalman Circus. <laughs> they're like, mama. And they're, you know, they're doing, I don't know if it was salsa or swing. I think they were doing swing. They were taking swing classes. Um, yeah, it's, they're just, it's a fabulous family. We just adore them. They've been part of our lives for decades or part of my life for decades. Mm. And, uh, Annette, she was like, uh, she was like part of the, like the hip crowd. She was part of the, the hip mm. crowd back in, at that time from what, uh, I read in the book. She was, uh, yeah. very popular. Uh, she was with the popular group, uh, but uh, it was uh, quite something. When when I look back at uh, towards the end, there was like the liberation of France. That was for all the tragedy. It was it was really uplifting to see that France was able to be liberated by the Allies and the U.S. troops. Uh, what was your sense when you were researching? How did you how did you feel about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a joyous moment when liberation finally comes. There have been rumors for months that it, the war might end and the Allies were getting closer, but it finally came. And of course, there's that huge victory parade. De Gaulle arrives from England and walks into the Place de la Concorde, I think it is, and gives a speech. And the crowds are delirious and the Americans are all the Americans are all there. Tell them about because we traveled down the the. Yeah, and then and then and then of course, Jean, who's been waiting in Paris, in limbo, the minute that Patton comes through Paris, he gets in a car, a old Citroen, like Megre, the detective, with three journalists. He gets a gig with a resistance newspaper called Frank Tireur, mm. and he traveled literally in the wake of Patton's army east towards Germany, Poland. He doesn't know where, but he's going to look for uh, for Annette. And we followed that route. You can get a guide to it, actually. It's called the Voie de la Liberté, Liberty Road. And there are marker posts and information at all the towns that it goes through. And we followed that. We followed him uh, until we got to a little village called Gravelot, where the last sighting of John, John takes place. And there's a farm there called Mogador, uh, or just on the left as you go down into Gravelot. And that became semi well known because it was where Patton holed up for two weeks when his wow. tanks ran out of gas. There's a famous quote from General Patton where he said, <laughs> My men could eat their boots from <laughs> tanks, need gasoline. 
And he was stuck there at this farmhouse for two weeks. And we came and we looked at it and knocked on the door. An old French peasant woman answers the door and she doesn't know anything about Jean, but she knows all about Patton and that he stayed there. And she points to the farmyard. And there we discover these huge, great American army, U.S. army artillery shells. Wow. A spade and, a, and an American can, water canteen. Incredible. Um, yeah. Prior to uh, uh, us uh, getting on this episode here, I did look at some liberation of Paris uh, after World War II on YouTube, and there were thousands, if not millions, of Parisians yep. lining the streets with the American and Allied troops and the American flags. That that just looked unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that is just it, it. I mean, it gave me goosebumps when I saw that. It's incredible. Like they were finally free, and they had to really like. They had not pinched themselves, but they were putting up peace signs and, yeah. and things of that nature. I find that uh, you know, the Allied forces. I, I just like to hit here because it's, it is one of my beefs with Holocaust deniers that um, the people who deny the Holocaust forget what our American troops and, 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 and you know, what they witnessed what they saw mm-hmm. and what they sacrificed in order for the liberation of Paris. And anybody who denies the Holocaust denies those sacrifices. And, and I just think it's so important that we remember that, you know, this was a huge, I don't know, a single veteran from World War II who denies the Holocaust. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, that, to, for anybody to deny the Holocaust is repulsive, repugnant. I did see on the video there the German troops. They were being uh, things thrown at them and uh, being yelled at by the Parisians, yeah. and they were running with their hands up. So uh, yeah. it, that was uh, quite. It was quite nice to see as well, if I don't mind saying that. Yeah. 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 This book was uh, tremendous. Uh, it was a tr- look back at a family that fought through uh, the Nazi occupation. What are some things that you learned about it, uh, about the Zelmans that maybe you find uh, my audience would find it rather fascinating? I think one of the things that I love most about the Zelman circus is the closeness of the family and, and the real, it is the true family unit and, and how, um, I mean, they're creative and energetic and, um, and they don't always agree, but they always love each other. And one of my favorite scenes is, you know, when Annette is, you know, just tortured in love with Jean Josien and her father is, you know, she's crying and weeping and, and, you know, he holds her and weeps with her. He doesn't even know what's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> He's just, you know, and then when he finds out what's wrong and that she's fallen in love with this Gentile, you know, he's like, ah, and he's, you know, they're screaming and yelling at each other. And then they, once again, they fall into each other's arms and weep and hug each other. And he accepts Jean. And, you know, that is family. You, you, you may not always like what your kids do or your siblings do, um, but you love them. And, uh, and I think, you know, that's how they survived. Um, and the loss of Annette was a huge hole 
in their lives. Um, and, and I don't know that anybody ever recovers a loss like that. Um, for me, uh, finding, um, the, the archive that I did that reports Annette's presence in Auschwitz. So we have, uh, debate, we sat down with Michelle and we read it together. Um, the last known words of Annette, uh, you know, that is in one sense, a way of cl- closure and giving peace. Um, but, but she left a hole in all of their lives. And even her grandsons say to us, you know, you guys know our, our, our great aunt better than we do. Mm. Um, yeah, she, I, she's left a hole in my life cause I never got to meet her. I mean, I mm-hmm. love her. I just love her. <laughs> I think your listeners will fall in love with the family as we did and with Annette. And I think it's a, a great advertisement, if you like, for an open, free, liberal upbringing. You know, the parents were very hands-off. They let those kids basically become the people they wanted to become. And they didn't intervene mm. and they didn't they disciplined them. And it was an open, fun, democratic kind of upbringing. Say the right. Well, you know, I've also found that, you know, even though that the Zelmans did not approve of Jean, but what I really found fascinating was that well, they only very much at the beginning. They at the beginning, right? They eventually adopted him, and he became their son. Absolutely, that was they uh, loved that. I found that to be they 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 knew that she he had Annette's back, and I think that was uh, tremendous through all they've been through. I thought that was uh, remarkable. So. Heather and Simon, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining my podcast, HodgePod. It's been truly an honor that you would come on, and uh, I really uh, appreciate you sharing your research and writing this book, Star-Crossed, a tremendous look back at a family and Annette Zellman. It's truly uh, remarkable. So thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thank you so much, Rob. It's a real pleasure. Star-Crossed, it is an amazing book. I could not put it down once I started reading it. For some of my New York listeners, Heather and Simon will be at the Floyd Memorial Library in Greenport, New York, September 17th from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. to discuss Star-Crossed. In addition, on September 21st, Heather and Simon will be at the Barnes & Noble bookstore in Staten Island Mall from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. Again, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.